Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast for Salem Heights Church. We meet weekly at 9 and 11 a.m. For more information, visit SalemHeightsChurch.org. Man, aren't you thankful to be here this morning? We're going to be in the book of Jude again. I think you can see that on the screen. So as you're turning there, I just uh, have a couple of quick announcements uh, that I want to make sure that uh, are, are brought into the room. Uh, I don't know how many of you women are aware that there's a women's retreat that's going to be going on here really soon. Are you aware of that? Yeah? Okay, so that was real strong. Here's what I'm going to ask you to do. Gals, if uh, you know somebody who may not be attending, all right? This is what I'm going to ask you to do. We're, we're, we're going to shoot for over 100 folks getting invited. I want you to pray about getting somebody that's not attending to come and join you. Pay their way. Ask them to join you. I really believe that this retreat matters, okay? Uh, amen or okay goes there. Okay, yeah, there we go, yeah. There's no other stick, that's it. I want you to pray about doing this. this uh, the retreats like this, these moments like these are rare. There's a lot of other things that are competing for our attention. There are a lot of other discouraging things that are getting in the way of people attending. Pray about somebody that you could invite. If you are in a good place and you're excited to go, uh, you've got a group of folks that uh, you say, man, we could add a couple more to our little uh, group of friends that would be really encouraged by this weekend. I'm going to ask you to get out your phones at some point, not during the middle of the message, please, but uh, sometime today, go online, register them, pay for somebody to go, ask them to join you. They're going to be blessed. Amen? Amen. All right. Uh, A second thing, there have been quite a few people asking whether or not we would have a special night to talk about Israel their place in biblical scripture, and uh, how we should be thinking about what is going on right now. Uh, And I need you to understand this matters. Amen? Amen. And so uh, just uh, as we were coming in today, Pete was bringing up uh, some of those things. Uh, Matt was bringing those up. We're going to find some way. uh, Our schedule has been super busy at the church, but we want to find a way not to add to your busyness, but to add... Uh, thoughtfulness, uh, biblical response to what we're seeing, not just in the, in the newspapers, but in reality. Uh, there is a lot of right concern about what is going on in Israel. Um, our understanding is that Israel matters uh, all the way through the scriptures. It matters, but it matters today, our understanding of Israel. Uh, but also, people's lives matter. Amen. We should not be excited to see anybody killed. We should not abandon what God says about Israel and about the future. So we got to find some way to think rightly in this season um, about what it is that is going on. We're going to find a way to put out some uh, biblical thoughts, some places where you can study, but also some prayer prompts as we're in this season. Uh, It matters and it would be important for us to uh, think rightly, think as a community of believers, be on the same page. So we're gonna find a way to address those things. Uh, Final thing, uh, we are going to be uh, talking about false teachers today. Um, This is an uh, an important subject. I I want you to, to be aware, there are a lot of teachers that are not false teachers. 
I'm actually wearing one of my favorite teachers, Bible teachers. I'm actually wearing his face on my <laughs> socks today. Can you get that picture up there? Is it possible to? There you go. For all you sock irritants, that's going to just make the top of the grade right there. Those are uh, Pete Loth specials, all right? You can't get them. One of a kind. They can be yours, though, if you invite people to women's retreat. I'll give these to you. I will give you my socks if you invite women there. Free to you. All right, we're going to be in... The book of Jude. Uh, Alistair Begg, when he was talking about this book, he was talking about the concern that is found in the book of Jude. And there was a, uh, um, a campaign that was going on back in his home country of England. And he had a, a picture of it. We got one from the Portland Street uh, entrance there where it says, see it, say it, sorted. That's kind of an English way. Uh, of saying, then it'll be taken care of. Uh, and this little phrase they had put up in all of the rails at the tubes now, it's a recent campaign that they're uh, going through. And the idea is this, in times of chaos, where uh, you're not sure if you can trust your neighbor, you're not sure about your standing uh, in any group of individuals, you're not sure whether or not they would accept your personality or that whether or not you're even safe, we tend to, instead of making sure that things are safe or looking out for the people around us, we tend to just kind of get back into a corner. We try to make ourselves small. We try not to make any waves, but we do tend to not speak up. The campaign was pushing to say, if you see anything that is out of sorts while you're there, if you see a backpack that gets left alone, if you see somebody that is acting uh, in an untoward way, if you uh, begin to see somebody that is getting uh, afraid of a different group of people, you should speak up, you should see it, you should say it, and that, they said, will get it sorted. The implication is, then the authorities would be able to come in and take care of those things. Now, we know um, there's not always a quick response to those things, but the ethic is what they're shooting for. When you see something that is wrong or that could be harmful, instead of hiding or getting out of the way, instead of just leaving the backpack there and running away from the train, you ought to warn the people that are getting on there, hey, there's something suspicious about that, so that they would be safe. It's the right thing to do. Jude, in this book, is highlighting stuff. The intention is not that you would go on a witch hunt and start labeling people. The intention is that instead of being afraid in a season where all these opinions are going off, and this is an appropriate time to be going through the book of Jude, but in a season where all the opinions are going off, you ought to see things that are really out of place. You ought to say something about it and make sure that it gets sorted so that you are not part of the problem or you're not allowing the problem to stay um, in place. Last week, Pete was highlighting the fact that this book is sending out the message that false teachers are not near, apostasy is not near, it's here. There are those who believe in heretical views that will smuggle themselves into the church for various reasons. And their desire is not just to keep those ideas quiet, their desire is to grow a tribe of individuals who will think like they do in order to put pressure on the group as a whole to think like they do. It works like a cancer. Now, this week, okay, um, I was telling the guys, I have 10 pages of notes. I don't intend to hit all of those things, okay? 
But this week is going to require a little bit of homework. Uh, th- there's something about my personality when, uh, when we get into the weeds, that's the term that I'll use with the guys sometimes, when we get into the minutia or details of certain things that I'm not really interested in, I just really quickly glass over. I don't care about coding in computers, all right, until I can't figure out how to open my email. <laughs> there are certain times where the details matter in order for you to be able to take care of whatever is next. This is what I'm going to ask you to do. I'm going to ask you to bear with me this morning as we walk through some statements that Jude makes. I and mean, you're going to see very plainly that he's intending for you to get these points He wants you to wrap your mind around them in order for you to walk away, not just informed, but able to take care of what the problem is in your midst. One last key side note before we read the book of Jude together. Uh, In this book, Jude quotes from extra biblical sources. This is super important. He quotes from extra biblical sources in particular on uh, Old Testament themes. So these extra-biblical sources are commenting on uh, common-held views about Old Testament passages. And he is saying, this is God's opinion about those passages. He's bringing them to light. Modern-day false teachers use this book and this style of quoting something outside of the Scriptures to call into question all of God's Word. You can just write down on your own, Dan Brown, Da Vinci Code uh, was one of the places where this became popularized. He's not the one that invented that. He's just bringing stuff out in a popular way in a novel to say, ah, they got some of these ideas from other people. Uh, Bart Ehrlman, if you want to look on the uh, intellectual side, is one of the guys who used to be a youth pastor, a Moody grad, is actually a guy that now uh, is one of the leading proponents for deconstructing your faith and using things like the book of Jude to get that accomplished. You gotta be careful here. I would have you understand a few things. If God says it's truth, it's truth. Amen? Now, I'm not just saying uh, that there, you don't need to ever investigate things that are in scripture, but this is one of the things that I, I need you to understand. When you are reading the word of God, at some point, you have to begin to trust God as he Point after point after point after point after season after season after season shows himself to be faithful. If every single time somebody has a little irritation about God, you go, oh yeah, we got to start at a zero sum. God hasn't proved anything yet. And you go right back to questioning God rather than questioning the critic. You haven't come to this place by faith. You got to have faith. At some point, you take a look at the word of God and believe if it's true, Uh, It's because God said it. If God said it, it's true. And this is why that's important. You begin to look differently. You begin to say, well, how is it that God could still be true against that critic? If you're going to trust somebody. If somebody was always questioning uh, your closest friend or your spouse, was always questioning somebody uh, that you have uh, come to trust, would you start always at at the beginning of that discussion saying, oh, yeah, they kind of, they're probably wrong. Or would you start with the idea, I don't see that in their character. Let me see how they could have said what this person said, but had a different angle for why they said it. God has been faithful. He's been faithful to you and I, amen? Amen. You ought to start from the angle saying, he's been faithful all this time. How could they be misunderstanding what he said? Quoting extra biblical texts does not mean that those texts 
are inspired. It just means that God has chosen to highlight a thought that comes out of those worlds. Quoting outside sources does not mean that the Bible is derived from those sources. Do you know it's possible for you to be in a car accident and actually be the person that was in the car accident knowing what you were thinking and what was happening behind the wheel? And then you can have somebody else who witnessed it from a distance or thought that they saw something from a distance and their storyline can be going alongside yours, let's say in the newspaper, all right? Newspapers never get things wrong. Uh, People, you know, online, they don't get stuff wrong. But it's possible a storyline could be there. And they could have an entirely wrong opinion, but they might have said something that was true. It's possible for the person in the car to look at that outside testimony and say, you know what, they were right here, but all the rest of this was wrong. The person who's inside is the one you got to pay attention to. God's the one on the inside. He's quoting these sources saying they got a couple things right, a lot of things wrong, but listen to him here. It highlights my point, he says. So God quotes these outside sources. The truth is not derived from those sources. God's just saying they've got some true opinions. Other works can be important without being inspired or heresy. We tend to either accept everything or anathematize everything, and we got to quit with the black and white thinking that way. Some traditions are true, but not necessary. It is possible that Peter was crucified upside down, that there was a debate that was happening right there at that moment as his wife is killed before he is. This horrifying storyline, it's a tradition that goes alongside Scripture. It's not written anywhere in our Bibles. It's something that we have heard. Someday, God's going to look at us and tell us what actually happened in that moment. But it's not necessary for you to buy into the tradition in order to accept truth. Amen? Amen. Paul wrote some letters to the Corinthians and he said, you know what? I was pretty strong in those letters. They're not scripture. That was just for those people. It doesn't mean that he taught error, but it also doesn't mean that it's scripture. Everything Paul wrote was not scripture. We need to think differently about those things. Are we doing okay? All right, so now next week I'll tell you why I think Jude uses these particular elements uh, because that's not our main point this morning. I just want you to pack that with you as you hear this uh, as we read it. Now, I want us to read the whole book of Jude. I am aware that to read a whole book of the Bible is scary, but note in your Bibles as you've turned there, okay, if you get into the book of Jude, you go all the way to the back. If you've gone to maps, you're too far. Jude is a little tiny work that looks like it's just an introduction to the book of Revelation, but it is a whole book. We're going to read this so you hear the context and we're going to look at some things. Join me here in the book of Jude. Let's stand as we read God's word together. And the scripture says this, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James, to those who are called, loved by God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Dear friends, although I was eager to write to you about the salvation that we share, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was delivered to the saints once for all. Just on your own, look up that phrase, how it appears in the New Testament. It's consistently attached to Christ teaching his men about himself. For some people who were designated for this judgment long ago have come in by stealth. They are ungodly, turning the grace of our God into sensuality and denying Jesus Christ, our only master and Lord. Now I want to remind you, although you came to know all these things once for all, that Jesus saved a people out of Egypt and later destroyed those who did not believe. 
And the angels who did not keep their own position but abandoned their proper dwelling, he is kept in eternal chains and deep darkness for judgment on the great day. Likewise, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns committed sexual immorality and perversions and serve as an example by undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. In the same way, these people, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, slander glorious ones. Yet when Michael the archangel was disputing with the devil in an argument about Moses' body, he did not dare utter a slanderous condemnation against him, but said, the Lord rebuke you. These people blaspheme anything that they do not understand, and what they do understand by instinct Like irrational animals, by these things they are destroyed. Woe to them, for they've gone the way of Cain. They have plunged into Balaam's error for profit. They have perished in Korah's rebellion. These people are dangerous reefs at your love feasts. They eat with you without reverence. They're shepherds who only look out after themselves. They are waterless clouds carried along by winds, trees in late autumn, fruitless, twice dead, uprooted. They are wild waves of the sea, foaming up their shameful deeds, wandering stars for whom the blackness of darkness is reserved forever. Just listen to the strong language Jude is using. It is about these that Enoch in the seventh generation from Adam prophesied, look, The Lord comes to ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all ungodly concerning all the ungodly acts that they have done in an ungodly way. Concerning all the harsh things ungodly sinners have said against him. These people are discontented, grumblers, living according to their desires. Their mouths utter arrogant words, flattering people for their own advantage. But you, dear friends, remember what was predicted by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They told you in the end times there will be scoffers living according to their own ungodly desires. These people create divisions, are worldly, not having the spirit. But you, dear friends, here's his point. As you build yourself up in your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God waiting expectantly for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ for eternal life. Have mercy on those who waver. Save others, snatching them out of the fire. Have mercy on others, but with fear, even hating the garment defiled by the flesh. Now to him who is able to protect you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory without blemish, with great joy, To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, power, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. You believe there's something in there for us? You may be seated. That's the entire book of Jude. We could camp right there. Or I should say we could even close right there. He says so many things and I think there's a lot to chew on. This is what I want us to consider very quickly this morning. In uh, the psychology world, there is actually a manual that uh, some of them will use. It's called the the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. 
Um, I think they're at five. I don't know if they're at six now, but uh, they've had all of these manuals where basically they give you an idea about a psychological disorder and they begin to list out. Here's a background. Here's the way you can identify if somebody is struggling with that. Uh, now, I know for some of you that are uh, hypochondriacs, you're going to run and start finding out how many different issues you might have and be able to prove it. Please don't run to this manual for that thinking. But what we're going to do right now is drop into Dr. Jude's office. And he's going to sit down with this and begin to do a personal investigation whether or not we have a disorder that is harming the church. This is intended for us to be able to investigate first our own lives and then some of the interactions that are happening around us. And he gives us these things. Jude is highlighting in this book that God judged sin in the Old Testament. And he is saying God still judges sin. Amen? There is a problem. We have forgotten because grace is important and it really is. We have set aside the idea that God judges sin or that he has a harsh opinion of those that would lead his children to stray. He still is concerned about those things. He's warning us. There is a group of people who not only want you to reject what God says is true, they want to lead you into their own thinking and it's sin. I just want to look at, uh, at verse 8, 12, 16, and 19. There's a statement that's made that is these people, and it identifies apostate teachers, false teachers. There's a key overarching thing that you are looking for, a mood or an attitude in those who have snuck into the church. And, and this is what you need to understand. Scripture tells us this isn't just happening in some random church, you know, a big place somewhere else. This is what Jude is warning us. If we are really following the Lord, if the Spirit of God is really activating things that are happening here, if we are really growing by his hand, there are false teachers who have snuck in here. I want you to hear this. Somebody in here will desire to lead you astray. Do you feel that hush calm? We're not to be afraid. We're not to go on a witch hunt. We are to be aware. The attitude towards truth, others, and leaders will present as toxic. The desire to be seen as a leader and faithful will be central. If you have one of these issues consistently in your life, uh, it's a problem. But four or more of these, and it requires an intervention from friends that are godly. So what are the identifying markers? We cannot unpack all of these and how they develop all the way through scripture. This is why I want you to do your homework. But I want to run through. There are 13, isn't that interesting? 13 identifying markers of an apostate here in the book of Jude. Let's blast through them. We'll be gasping for air. All right? But I want us to see these things and be warned. First, it says, there in verse 8, um, that... They rely on their dreams uh, as the way that they respond. Verse 8, it says, uh, In the same way, these people relying on their dreams defile the flesh, reject authority, and slander glorious ones. Rely on their dreams. Uh, throughout um, the scriptures here, I highlight uh, they're com combining intuition, desire, and myth. A good place to see this develop is in 2 Peter 2, verses 1 through 3. There was a, uh, a study that was done just a little while ago on why people are leaving the church. And uh, in the book, Habits of the Heart, 
Robert Bella and his colleagues wrote about an interview with a young nurse named Sheila Larson. They described as representing many of Americans' uh, experience and views on religion. Speaking about her own faith and how it operated in her life, she says, I believe in God. I'm not a religious fanatic. I can't remember the last time that I went to church, but my faith has carried me a long way. I call it Sheilaism. My own little voice. We might say that this highly individualistic faith is the most popular religion in the world today. The idea that we can or should put together our own faith is wrong. Christianity is based on one faith, once for all delivered to the saints. Jude highlights that. Uh, We need to remember that our opinions need to be measured by Scripture. We don't just say, well, I kind of feel this is the direction we should go and find Scripture to back it up. They rely on their dreams, their intuition. Secondly, they defile the flesh. All the way through Scripture and in this book, it is really evident. Defile the flesh is to reject God's plan for sexuality. We believe that he doesn't have a plan. We believe that his plan is irrelevant. We believe that it is culturally constrained. God's plan for sexuality is a lot bigger than just our opinion or pleasure. Amen? Third, they will reject authority. They will dismiss God's word, God's leadership structure. Now, he's not just talking about pastors and teachers, although he is including that in here. Uh, But this idea of rejecting authority, uh, 1 Timothy 2, verses 1 through 6, civil government is listed as an authority. In Ephesians 6, the spiritual realm is listed as having authorities. The idea that you reject authority is, I don't care if you're a spiritual leader in our church. I don't care if you're a civil leader. I don't care if you're a spiritual entity. I don't respect your authority at all. I'm the authority, and I have authority over you. And you'll see them begin to speak as if their authority supersedes any authority that's in the room. They reject authority, any authority that's not them. They slander glorious ones. Um, It says, yet when Michael the archangel was disputing with the devil in an argument about Moses' body, he did not dare utter slanderous condemnation against him. Now, Michael, one of those that actually has access to the presence of God, is going out from God to do his work. He's representing Israel. He's taking care of mighty things. Even he doesn't look at Satan and say, get out of my way. He said, the Lord rebuke you. He has a respect for this angel that has so much power. Be super careful, by the way, on those who say that they have power over the devil or they claim that they can just bind him by their own word. Do you want to know the only person who can bind him? Jesus, God. Only God can do that. You do not have power over him. God has power in him. If Jesus is inside of you, Jesus has power over uh, that devil. But it's not your strength. It is not your conviction. It is not your words that scare him. It is only the Lord. Okay? Slander glorious ones. He goes on to say, these people, verse 12, are dangerous reefs. Now he he moves into metaphor because he doesn't want you just to listen to the words. He wants you to wrap your mind around the emotion of it. These people are dangerous reefs at your love feasts as they eat with you without reverence. Um, What they would have is they would have a feast that consistently would go alongside the Lord's Supper. As they would um, share the meal together, he says that some of these people would begin to speak and a dangerous reef to a boat does one of two things. It either wrecks your ship or it slows your progress to safe harbor. It gets you stuck 
and you cannot get where you need to go when there's a storm. One of two things, wrecks the ship or slows your progress. Uh, just a side note, there is a, um, a whole group of people right now doing something that uh, we would call uh, deconstruction. I don't know if you've heard this term, deconstructing your faith. It's something that is really popular uh, in the world around us. Uh, there are different forms of deconstruction. Uh, what people are doing is they're beginning to question some of their beliefs uh, in, in uh, Jesus Christ or in the historic faith, and they begin to question those. Questions aren't a problem. Uh, but it's the attitude that would lead those questions unanswered. One author, uh, Brian Zond, in his book, um, when everything catches fire, uh, says this, deconstruction is a crisis of Christian faith that leads either to a reevaluation of Christianity or sometimes a total abandonment of Christianity. First and foremost, deconstruction is not synonymous with deconversion, but everyone, um, not everyone who deconstructs deconverts, but many of those right now who are deconverting from the faith have gone through a process of deconstruction. These people are constantly, the, these people in the book of Jude are constantly questioning the faith, challenging ancient truths without offering any valid orthodox response. It is one thing to question. It is healthy for us to inspect and say, why does it have to be this way? Why are things done this way? Why does scripture say that? That is healthy for us to do. It is not healthy to only have questions and tear down what is there and not offer any thoughtful response. Maturity says, I'm going to give you something stable that says, not this, that, right? But these people are reefs in the love feast. They're shattering faith and they're just are questioning it and irritated and they don't have any real response. They just want you to be irritated along with them. Dangerous reefs. Waterless clouds. Constantly seem to promise something but don't deliver. A waterless cloud is coming over the top. Now we don't have many of those in Oregon. All right? <laughs> But there's a lot of places where they might need some rain and they see this cloud that comes over and they're hopeful that maybe that means that there's going to be something beautiful that washes out of that, but it does not produce. They constantly seem to promise connection or blessing, but they don't actually deliver that. They deliver the dangerous reef. Wild waves foaming. Listen to this. It says, verse 13, they are wild waves of the sea foaming up what? Their shameful deeds. Now remember, they're in a place of faith. So how would you foam up their shameful deeds? There's one of two ways. Either they are secretly doing things that are shameful and inviting you into that process, or they are spending so much time. Have you ever been at a testimony night where all you hear are about, oh man, yeah, you know, I used to be, and they start going through this list of really terrible things that they participated in, right? But that's all you hear, Oh man, that was really bad. And as they begin to foam up those old deeds, they're kind of relishing the old deeds that they were doing as if that was kind of cool or that was crazy or somehow you ought to be in awe of those crazy deeds rather than those deeds were so horrific they need to be submitted to Jesus Christ. Constantly foaming up those old deeds is causing you to gain respect for them today because of the horrible things they did rather than because of the grace of God that's evident in their life. Wild waves foaming, avoid it. He moves forward in here. Um, verse 16, 
These people are discontented grumblers living according to their desires, their mouth utter, arrogant words, flattering people for their own advantage. Discontented grumblers or scoffers, I don't think you have to have much of an explanation. We live in a world right now that loves discontent. We scoff, we turn on the radio for scoffers, we've begun to, to move our programming towards those who are discontented, grumbling, and proud of it. They live according to desire. I remember this crazy uh, story one author was telling. Uh, he actually made a, a set of hot wings to take to a tailgate party. They were so hot, he just knew it would blow somebody's face off when they ate it, all right? <laughs> it was terrible. And he says, he just took it, he goes, hey man, I made this special batch, I don't think anybody can handle it. And some brave dude steps up and goes, I can handle anything you've got going, right? So he just gets his buttermilk out for him, and uh, he gives him one of these hot wings, and the guy pops it in his mouth, and sure enough, I mean, he's foaming like a rabid dog, and he's running all around, and he's putting everything that he can get cold into his mouth, and he's crying, and it's all stepped up, and, and he goes, who else wants to try these? And another guy's like, I'll try it. And then he has the same reaction, even though he's just nibbled on it. And the next guy's like, well, I'll try it. And pretty soon he said, something weird has happened. They see how terrible the result is for every single one of these. But all of these people begin to gather around and they're offering them to him saying, you try it, you try it, you try it. They've had a horrible experience and all of the wings were gone. They ate the entire batch of these horrific experiences. Why? They desired to be significant and they desired to taste those hot wings. They could see that the result was bad, but they didn't care about the result. They cared about the experience. They were living according to their desires. They're inviting other people into it. And everybody in there has indigestion and can't enjoy the game. <laughs> or the people near them can't enjoy the game. Horrific. Now that's a one way to illustrate it, but living according to desire is living according to whatever whim passes through your mind. We live in a culture that has found a way to justify everything that they're thinking. They bless in order to get an advantage. They create divisions when their opinion is not central. They are worldly. Now it's not hard to define this if you just look in scripture, but the essence of worldliness is that they're a friend of the world rather than seen as a friend of God. Their, their lists that they would give you are according to worldly achievements rather than according to God's gifting. They do not have the spirit. God said this is the identifying markers of the apostate personality disorder. Now it is possible to be apostate and not know it. It is possible to have those opinions that are wrong and not know it. Uh, there's a famous joke about a guy that uh, comes into a dentist's office and he says to the dentist, uh, I'm a moth. And the guy says, uh, this is a dentist's office. You don't need a dentist's office. You need a psychiatrist. And the moth says, I have a psychiatrist. He says, well, then why are you here? He said, because your light's on. Some people are just drawn according to their own internal compass. They're not aware of what is true. The implication of this passage, though, is these folks haven't just snuck in. They know that their opinions and their standards, their ideas are not the same as what Scripture says or the same as the people that are around them. 
and they have been plotting a plan to begin to change your mind, to change the thinking, to attack what you would be about. I want you to notice the progression, and we're moving quickly here. Notice the progression that's right at the beginning. Um, Verse 11, woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain, gone. They have plunged into Balaam's error for profit, and they have perished in Korah's rebellion. Gone, plunged, perish. Quickly, Cain. Some people say that that, uh, the whole problem between Cain and Abel was that he didn't bring a blood sacrifice. The Old Testament is filled with grain offerings and vegetable offerings. Um, You were to be able to tie things and bring those in, offer those things to the Lord. The issue wasn't whether or not he actually had a blood offering or a grain offering. I think the issue that is there is the heart. God looked at the heart and he said, this one brought me an offering, but you brought that offering so that I would appreciate you. He was angry that he couldn't worship the way that he wanted. You find that story in Genesis chapter 4. There's a famous little parable, a little storyline about a king. And one day as the king was uh, having people present offerings to him, this farmer with a plot of land that's really near the castle had brought him in a giant turnip. And when he brought in that giant turnip, uh, he presents it to the king and he says, King, you're such an amazing king. You're so profound in what you do, so significant. I, I want to offer you this turnip. Uh, and the king blesses him. He says, you know what? You've done such an amazing job with this massive turnip. He says, I have another plot of land that's right near the castle over here. I want to give that to you as well. I want you to farm all of that on my behalf. Go, be blessed. Uh, just bring me something from those fields. But I'm thankful for that. And one of his close advisors saw how the king had blessed this man that brought him a turnip. He goes, man, if he'll do that for a turnip, what would he do for a massive horse? So he goes away and he spends all of his money on this amazing horse and he comes in the next week as people are presenting to the king and he brings in this horse and the king was wise and he sees him and the man comes in and he says, in all of the realm, there's not a horse like this horse. And when I saw it, king, I just knew that uh, you needed this horse. And so the king says, oh, thank you. I really appreciate it. And then says, next And he could see on his advisor's face, he was irritated. And he goes, "Uh, I'm sorry, before we move on, what is wrong? And he said, well, last week you gave this little farmer, uh, the turnip farmer, an extra plot of land. And for me, you just passed me on. And he says, well, there's an important difference. You see, that man last week brought me a turnip, but this week you brought you a horse. That's the problem with Cain. Why do I take time to emphasize that? We do that. We do that. Instead of bringing God something for God alone, we advertise to the people around because we want the blessing of whatever it is we're doing. That's the way of Cain. We want to worship the way that we want to worship for our glory, not for his. We've got to get our eyes on the Lord. Balaam. He tied his significance to finding fault with God's people. You can find his story in Numbers 22 through 25. Three different times a foreign king had stirred up Balaam and said, I want you to come and and, uh, curse these people. And he says, every single time that I get ready to curse them, the Spirit of God fills me up and I can't curse them. He accidentally blesses them three different times. In fact, one of the most significant prophecies about Jesus Christ coming, the star rising out of Judah in that moment, the one that I believe, 
believe that the wise men are following later on. That prophecy is brought up by Balaam as he's trying to curse these people, but inadvertently blesses them each time. But he comes up with a way to do it in Numbers chapter 25. He says, I can't get God to curse his people, but I can show you how to get those people to lose God's blessing. And he brings in a bunch of women into the camp and he stirs up all of these young men and they say, well, we will stay the night with you if you'll just drop a little coin in this idol's box. You worship with us and then live the way that we want you to live. And that nefarious moment caused God to punish his people. Balaam tied his significance to finding fault with God's people. There are people today who tie their significance to pointing out other people's error that are believers. Korah finally declared any leadership other than his own as contrived. That means stolen through skill or falsehood. The only reason people are following you is you got other people propping you up, Moses. You're not really, I mean, some really cool things happened in Egypt and you've kind of ridden that wave as our leader, but you're not really a better leader than I am, Korah says. He said, I'm a son of renown. I'm a significant person in the congregation. They should follow me. And number 16 tells you the story. There's a progression that happens there. It starts by being frustrated. I can't worship the way I want. And it leads to an angry proving the point. That's the progress that happens. Just be aware. All right, uh, deep cleansing breath, okay? Can you feel the tension as we describe this? Can you feel the nervousness? Hopefully you're not feeling a bunch of eyes on you saying, you, you're, you're the one. We need to be aware. Why all the bluster? There was a uh, spy, and he was told, World War II era, hey, there's a guy in Ireland uh, that we have placed there. Name is Murphy. You need to go, and you need to find him. He has some secret documents for us. And so he goes up into this place in Ireland. Uh, this spy does, and he has his code phrase that's with him, and he drops into this little pub as he is going along the way, and he says, hey, I've heard there might be a man near here. I'm, I'm looking for a guy by the name of Murphy. And the pub owner looks at him and he goes, oh man, you're in luck, right, right in this village that we're in right here. He says, there's all kinds of Murphys. He said, there's a Murphy, the, the farmer that's on this corner here. He says, there's a Murphy. Uh, there's three widows that are Murphys. In fact, I'm a Murphy. And the guy says, oh man, this has got to be the guy. So he offers the code phrase. He says, uh, the grass is green. The cows are ready to be milked. And uh, the sun is uh, rising high. And he goes, oh, you're looking for Murphy the spy. He's in the next vi- village over. <laughs> Sometimes it's evident when we're looking for Murphy the spy, okay? We can tell just by the code phrase that the guy has already been outed before. Why would God spend this time to highlight for you an apostate? Why would he do it? Just like the, the, when you're getting on the tube in London, the warning is that you need to be able to see it, you need to be able to say it, and that's going to help sort it, Okay? God's word is always proclaimed with a view to repentance and action. This is not the final label for an individual. If somebody struggles with some of these categories, the goal is repentance, not rejection. It is 
Not a witch hunt, okay? That's not what we're supposed to be about. It is actually a warning. It's a warning if you are that person. It is a warning to you as a congregation not to just let it sit. We need to speak those things up. A couple of key things we need to understand and we'll pray. Apostates do not repent. They won't repent. You want to find out the pattern for repentance? Read 2 Corinthians 7. It shows you when you're really moved by God, you're not waiting for other people to speak up. You're not trying to find out how you can just get back right. You bow before the living God and you are not settled until you have made it right. It's not somebody else's fault. You're not blame shifting in those things. 2 Corinthians 7 tells you how to get right with the Lord and get right with people. Apostates don't do this. But you can if you have been found constantly grumbling, complaining, irritating, four of these things are yours, and somebody approaches you and says, hey man, we gotta talk about some of these things. The first thing that you ought to do is say, Lord, is this true? And if it's true, you repent. You repent. Now sometimes somebody can just be irritated with you and not like your choices. You still need to listen to them as a brother or sister in Christ, amen? Listen to that irritation, get right with them. Apostates don't repent. Secondly, the worldly do not act. Second Peter 2 highlights a similar pattern that is here. You can read that. Uh, but those that are worldly will not step forward. They don't want to be separated from the world in any significant way so that they get outed as a believer and they don't want to take on any hard things. They just want to do life and slip back into their home. Apostates don't repent. The worldly do not act. But believers will see it, say it, and sort it. They will do the right thing. Folks, uh, I mean, and this is uh, an important topic. We've taken time this morning to unpack it, but this is what I really want you to consider. I don't want you to start today by looking around the auditorium beginning to out somebody or searching for an apostate. I want you to know that we live in a generation right now where apostates, where false teachers, where heretical views are popping up everywhere as if they're new and fresh. People are questioning the word of God as if, oh, this is the first time this argument has been used. It is not easy to find the answers. It is easy to find those who are against first thing I want to do is just have you check in your own heart. Have you begun to drift a little bit from your concern about truth? Have you begun to allow those voices to be highlighted? If so, you just repent before God and say, God, please help me to make sure I do the right thing with this information. Help me to make sure that those things that are your ideals and your purposes, that the gospel and the way to move that forward in the world is preeminent. Get that sorted with God and the rest will fall into place. Amen. If you're struggling this morning because some of those attitudes you know in your own heart, some of those attitudes have been yours, do not leave today without sorting that out with the Lord. Repent. And if you need help doing that, we will have folks up here that will be able to help you. If you've never given your life to Christ, you've always been irritated and you desire to do that today. Give your life to Christ. Let those things go that are not his opinion and his ways. Cling to him. We can also help you with those things. But you don't need us. You can just bow your knee and yield to the Lord. But if you're a believer, take heart. God is not done. He is soon to return and he's going to put this world right. And until then, he wants you to act like he would have him act. All right? He wants you to act the way that you should. Yield. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and we ask that you would help us. Uh, Jude puts us in a prophetic mode. 
Uh, he speaks to us in a way that demands action. With emotion, with heart, with deep concern, he speaks to a generation of people who were drifting so quickly. They were coming in energized, excited. They're still having love feasts to you, but they were getting pulled away by false teaching. They were getting distracted by side views and secondary opinions. They were getting overwhelmed by people whose desire was to be significant and to fracture the faithful. They were not running to you. Father, help us to get our eyes on you. Help us to read your word and to say, if you said it that way, I'm going to yield to it that way, not explain it away. Father, help us to love you. Help us to love our neighbor, the people that are around us. A struggle in one or two areas does not make somebody worthy of rejection. It makes them worthy of a statement so that they might yield to your grace, your goodness, run back to fellowship. Father, find us faithful, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.